Bless the victory 
how beautiful that really is to be living here in the United States of America. We are truly blessed. You know, our men and women are some of the best women and men in the entire world. When things go down around the world, no matter what, war, fires, whatever, The American people are always ready and willing to pack up and head out to help. Three Americans were killed in a water tanker crash last night, fighting fires for the Australian people. And we all know how devastating those wildfires have been here in the recent. And I'm telling you, We stand up, no matter the call. Let's listen in to this little clip. That breaking news overnight, three Americans killed fighting those wildfires in Australia, their air tanker crashing. James Longman starts us off with the very latest. Good morning, James. Yeah, good morning, Michael. This was a devastating accident. Three U.S. firemen going down in their plane in what's being described as a fireball. They were in Australia tackling those ongoing uh, bush fires. And this morning, we're hearing a chilling call for help. Overnight, as the fires continue to blaze through this country, a harrowing call to emergency dispatch. Yeah, fire comes. It's just uh, of all the flames. Over. Three American firefighters dead after their water bombing plane crashed. Our deepest condolences to those families uh, who've been impacted. And today is a stark and, and horrible reminder of the dangerous conditions. The Americans were in Australia to help fight the fires near New South Wales, where more than 3,000 homes have been destroyed and 28 people have died. Flames spreading to the nation's capital in Canberra overnight. Thick columns of smoke rising above the airport, forcing parts of it to shut down and stranding residents in nearby neighbourhoods. It was very, very smoky up there. And my grandson lives in Oaks Estate and he's just been told it's too late to leave. America has already sent 200 people to help fight these flames. Remember, we're only halfway through the summer. Scorching temperatures are going to continue. So the United States will be sending more people to help fight these bushfires. Yeah, it's such a terrible situation.
So there you have it. We're always willing to go into the danger zone. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is the way America has been for years and years. And this beacon of hope, this light that we shine, a lot of people, they follow after it. Here in the recent, we've been hearing a lot of people dish on America. Well, it's time to get some praise going for America for the things that they do right. So often, we're so willing to stand up, shout out when people do the wrong thing. But when they do the right thing, well, people don't acknowledge that as often. America has done some things that, you know, I'm not proud of. But every nation, every person, they have to learn through mistakes. And that's the beauty of history. Never forget history or else it repeats itself. So let's carry on with today's episode, our live cast here right on CastBox FM. You can always join us over here. Find all of our content on deadamerica.website. We'd love to have you over there. Join all of our shows. Anyway, we also have Mr. Donald Trump. He keeps on making those deals around the world. We need to make America great again, that's for sure. Not that it ever stopped being great. Let's remember that also. It's a good tagline. But with the previous administrations, boy, we were being gobbled up. And I'm telling you, we watched America get devastated. It's time for a person like Donald Trump to stand up and take control. And let's avoid some kinetic energy by doing some diplomatic good. And that's what deal making is about. We can do all of this through diplomatic means. So all of these wars around the world, you know, we might be able to do it better at the table. Yes, sometimes we definitely need that conflict. But, boy, at all costs, don't we want to try to avoid it? I know I do. That's what's in my heart. As an American, I don't want anybody to go through harm. That's, that's a bad way to have our hearts and our minds wanting to go out and do harm to others. We don't need to take advantage. We need to give advantage. That's the American way. That promotes the American dream. Now, back to Mr. Trump making them deals. The grease. Let's see. They are making deals. And Mr. Trump is apparently right on the verge of making a trade pact with the EU. So let's listen to the Prime Minister of Greece. We'll start with trade, we'll get to the markets, and I know you've got a lot to say on it. 
Are you as pragmatic as the Dutch Prime Minister about dealing with the United States and ultimately coming to some kind of trade truce? Yes, I am. And I was happy to hear the comments made by the US president here in Davos that he is looking to have a you know, quick negotiation with uh, uh, Europe to, complete a, uh, to conclude a trade deal as soon as possible. I heard the um, president of the commission who we should uh, inform the US public is negotiating on behalf of all European countries, say that we could get a, a deal done in, in weeks. I don't know if it's going to be weeks or months, but I think that the ingredients are here uh, for a deal that's going to be a win-win uh, uh, solution. Well, for let's both compare months. and contrast the comments on Tuesday from the administration, softer, Wednesday, a whole lot harder. Not just from the president, who basically said that Europe in some ways is worse than China on trade, but also from the secretary Mnuchin, Stephen mm. Mnuchin of the Treasury, essentially saying that if you arbitrarily put a tax on digital companies, we'll arbitrarily put them on auto companies as well. I just wonder, your take, whether some European officials have been slightly naive about what could be coming down the road towards exactly. them a little bit exactly. later this year. Well, I'm fully aware that this is not going to be an easy negotiation. But I still believe that it is in the interest of both uh, trading blocs uh, to reach an agreement as soon as possible. And I think as we also enter uh, an electoral year in the U.S., and to the extent that trade seems to be the major concern as far as uh, global growth is uh, is concerned, uh, I think that uh, we we see the world through, I think, a relatively um, a similar uh, prism. Yeah. And I think that that agreement will be reached. But this is important. There's been bonds broken with China. But mm -hmm. China is distant in very much on the other side of the world. There are many relationships here. Just as an example, Matthew Prince of Cloudflare, of course, making a huge splash in Davos with his new piano bar, married at Mykonos. We had a surveillance wedding. Are you wedding. promoting a piano bar? No, I'm, pr I'm promoting, promoting tourism. You're promoting marriages in, uh, in Mykonos. No, I'm yeah. promoting not tourism, just but yeah. tourism. Wait, I'm promoting tourism among all these nations in a much closer link across the Atlantic than in China. We had a surveillance wedding in Greece that we all survived over the last 18 months as well. Do we risk, Prime Minister, breaking those cultural and social relationships with a trade war? Well, with that, is why, that is why I'm, I, I was always very concerned about this issue, and that's why I remain cautiously optimistic. I, I studied in the, U, in the U.S. I know the U.S. very well. And I'm fully aware that, you know, what unites us goes beyond the common economic interests. There is, uh, you know, a, a, a bond of fundamental values of, yeah. of democracies. I mean, Greece, uh, look at Greece, we'll be celebrating 200 years since our war of independence in 1821, uh, a war that was inspired by the founding fathers. So let's look at the big picture, uh, understand what unites us is much more than, uh, than what separates us. And if we have to both back off a little bit from maximalism. Well, do you sense that from the president of the United States? Is he being too adversarial? in initiating these discussions? Look, when I, when I saw him at the White House, I encouraged him to get a deal done with, uh, with Europe. And again, I will, uh, you know, I, I listened to his comments uh, here in Davos, and I think the general perception is that we're in a good path. Well, let's talk about the perception of Europe, politically speaking. I, I live in New York alongside mm -hmm. Tom. We used to live in the same building as well. We don't well we're not in anymore. speaking terms anymore, so it doesn't work out. We'll move on from that very quickly. Not I will say, though, <laughs> I hope not. I will say, though, that the perception of Europe is that it's full of socialists. It's full of left-wing no, politicians. That's very wrong. And we're going to get yeah. to that in a moment. It's full of left-wing politicians that don't want to do business, are only interested in barriers to entry, and put in a big brick rule around the block. Mm. Centre-right politics, the future well, of that in Europe. What well, is we it? Want, we want on a centre-right um, uh, agenda. Yep. Liberal reforms, reducing taxes, 
um, deregulation, an inclusive economy. We've got 40 percent. We have an absolute majority. We beat the populace of the left and the right at their own game. And I think this sends a very positive signal that uh, traditional center-right parties uh, in Europe, provided they have the right agenda, mm -hmm. can actually win elections. They can beat the populace and certainly can beat the rhetoric of, of the left, which in right. Greece essentially led us to a second crisis. In my many conversations with Greek leadership of another time and place pre-crisis, there was a belief that if Greece could right its ship, the money would come back from those abroad of mm -hmm. Greece. Is that occurring? Do you see a new confidence where the money's actually coming back to Greece? It is coming back. Uh, it's coming back uh, you know, by, by Greeks who live abroad. It's coming back by Greeks who've decided to invest in, Greeks, in Greece. But it's also coming you know, from foreign investors who for the first time look at Greece and say, hey, we have a convincing investment uh, thesis yeah. here. And, and as you know, markets have been very good with Greece since we got elected. Look at our bond yields. They're Excuse actually me. They've not been very good. They've been a miracle. Our Matthew Winkler has documented. I believe. It is a miracle. Right? Five on ten. I believe, at the moment, just uh, as we speak. Actually, probably lower than that, yeah. uh, but uh, lower than Italy on, uh, on many days. But it, it does make sense. We have a stable government. We don't have elections for three and a half years. We have an absolute majority. Um, we're delivering on real reforms. So why wouldn't it happen? The fast money's come back. And I overheard a brief conversation, and I'm sure you mm -hmm. won't mind me sharing. An investor saying to you, you are a legend of the hedge fund community. Well, that's kind of them to say. Best yeah. performing equity market in the mm -hmm. world, I believe, last year. Mm -hmm. Fantastic amount of money. But you know the conviction level to put money into a market is a whole lot lower than it takes to put money into the ground to build a factory and to start investing well, in the country. That's again. why we focus so much on deregulation, on addressing issues such as bureaucracy licensing. If you look at, for example, what's happening in real estate, real estate is real money on the ground. Um, uh, real estate prices are up by 11% in 2019. I expect a similar tr trend in 2020. You look at big emblematic investments such as the old airport yep. uh, in Alinicon, it's been unblocked. So what I find very interesting is that uh, you know real companies are putting real money uh, on the ground. Some of the big tech companies in the US are interested in Greece. We have Pfizer setting up uh, you know an AI center in Greece, just taking advantage of the incredible amount of talent that we have in the country. So this is not just about tourism. It's not just about the sun or the beaches. It's about you know, a country that is moving out of a crisis at a very fast pace. You got some big targets, 100 billion euros of direct investment. Well, uh, that is the maximum we can get. But well, let's talk about uh, time frame. How quickly do you think you can get that kind of well, investment? Well, we, need, we, need, we need that over seven to eight years, uh, but we still have a significant capital gap to bridge. And that mm. is my main concern, how to get foreign direct investment in the country. Yep. It is already happening. It will continue to happen. Right for 2020, and I'm quite optimistic about it. Uh, Prime Minister, in the time that we have left with you, your family is the one of the heritage of Greece well back into mm -hmm. the 20th century. You have seen many turkeys to the east. Explain to us now how you perceive the new Mr. Erdogan. He, it's, it's been a changed Erdogan since 2002. How do you perceive Turkey to the east? Look, Turkey has been difficult to deal with. Um, we've um, honestly said that we want a good uh, and constructive relationship with uh, Turkey, but overall the behavior of Turkey has been uh, on the very aggressive side. They signed a deal with Libya, which is completely unacceptable to Greece regarding the delimitation of maritime zones. That's an illegal deal. That's what the European U Union said. That's what the U.S. said. So there's a constant state of provocation that I think will lead Turkey nowhere. We want to engage with Turkey on issues such as migration, which is a big challenge for us. How do you do that? 
when they have so many refugees and there's always this threat that they're just going to open the door and let them all pour into the Europe. Well, first of all, you can't deal with refugees by using uh, desperate people as a geopolitical wedge. Is that, what the, is that what the Turkish are doing? Well, that's what they've implied. I'm not saying they're doing it, but I'm also saying at the same time that we have an agreement as a European Union with Turkey. It can work well. It has worked well in the past. We need to stick to it. We need to update it. Mm. And we need to decouple migration from the other issues that we have. And I think we can do that. Mr. Prime Minister. So there you have it. A deal possible with the EU. And I'm telling you, as we all know, Europe deal with a lot of hardline issues over there. And hardline fundamentalist I'll tell you, these people have been fighting amongst themselves for years and years. That's why we had to go liberate Europe. And if it weren't for the good men and women of the United States of America, what would history play out like? Would it have, uh, I don't know, tipped the balance the other direction? Well, I'm sure a lot of people are happy that we did not keep to ourselves. And remember, Churchill, he tried for a long time to get Roosevelt to enter into this conflict, this European conflict. Well, then that infamous day happened. Pearl Harbor drew us into the war. Some say it was uh, orchestrated. I don't know. Who knows? What really matters is those men and women that lost life liberating Europe. You know how many U.S. bodies lie on the shore of Europe. My father could have been one of those casualties. For many years, I watched my father in his alcoholism. And I wondered, why? 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 And then I grew up. Could you imagine roaring up onto the beach of Normandy and that gate of that amphibious vehicle slams down and you have to go, my friend. Go, go, go. That's horrifying. And yet those men, they charged Forward, forward, forward. We have a mission. And it's all about duty. Why? Because if we don't stand up now, it might be too late later to stand up. Always remember that. I thank every vet, past, present, and future. 
just the willingness to stand up and do something about it. Thank you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Let's get back into this. Ted Cruz. He argues that Hunter Biden's testimony is crucial in the Senate trial. Let's listen in. I think the House managers made a very serious strategic error today. Adam Schiff's arguments to open the day today directly drew into question Hunter Biden because the House Democrats have built their entire case on the proposition that any investigation into Barisa and corruption was a sham, that it was completely debunked. If the House manager's case is based on the allegations of corruption concerning Hunter Biden and Joe Biden being a sham, then it is directly relevant. And I got to say, the need for the Senate to hear the testimony of Hunter Biden has become all the more relevant. Sounds like the Democrats made a mistake, according to Ted Cruz. Well, today, the president's impeachment trial resumes for day three. As the Texas senator argues, Adam Schiff's case now makes testimony from Hunter Biden crucial to the trial if there are witnesses. Yeah, why not? Is there a predicate for this happening? Here to weigh in is Fox News senior judicial analyst and host of the Liberty File on Fox Nation, Judge Andrew Palatano. Judge, does uh, Ted Cruz make a good point? Yeah, I think he does. So let me take this from the point of view of the person who will initially decide whether or not witnesses uh, are, are relevant. The Senate decides whether or not witnesses can be called. Right. I think they're going to go in that direction, because I think after hearing Senator Cruz, there are Republicans who want to hear from the Bidens and the. I've got a break right there. You know, (laughs) never underestimate Donald Trump. I'm I'm kind of wondering. You know, Donald Trump is a tactician. This man. He thinks. Brilliant. That's why he's president, people. Now, he came into this running on the premises of draining the swamp. <laughs> now, now, imagine this. Out of all of this happening, what if this is meant to be? What if this is meant to help pull in some of that Democrat swampish behavior into the political limelight where it has to be looked at. What difference does it make? At this point, what difference does it make? Well, it could make a lot of difference. See, all of those backdoor deals and those shenanigans for many, many years, you got to wonder, is this part of a big plan to get it before the Chief Justice? I don't know. That's something to think about. Let's finish listening to this. 
flip side of that is that there are Democrats who right, want to hear from John Bolton. Don't they vote on that? Yes, but they won't vote on a witness. They'll vote on the witness. ability to call a witness. Yeah. So Adam Schiff will call John Bolton. They'll take his uh, deposition. And Pat Chappellone will call well, either Hunter you're, Biden or the vice president. You're supposing that they vote for it. I, I don't think they're gonna, that's going to pass. Well, it's, I, I think it will after Senator Cruz. But the initial decider is the chief justice. So the first thing he's thinking is, what am I doing here? I'm like a bump on a log. I'm just watching this uh, this go on. Normally, judges are a lot more interactive. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the level for relevance is a low threshold. So if you make an argument to the chief justice like Senator Cruz just made to Chad Pergram or whoever was interviewing him down there, I think the chief justice will say, OK, the president is on trial. The president is in, is the defendant. The president is in danger of losing his office. He should be able to call whoever he wants that he thinks will help defend him. Mm-hmm. The Democrats will say that it is the president's behavior that's under scrutiny here. It's not Joe Biden's and it's not Hunter Biden's. The chief justice will make that call. Judge. And then if somebody objects, the Senate will vote. So, Judge, let's say Adam Schiff says, I want John Bolton. The Republicans say, I want one of the Bidens. I want the whistleblower. I want the whistleblower. They say, I want Mick Mulvaney. Right. Is there a ch- if they say they want them, do those those people have to talk? Yes. What about executive privilege? Well, they what can the they Fifth can Amendment? they can assert executive privilege. They can assert the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment prevents you from giving testimony harmful to yourself. Hunter executive Biden. right. Executive privilege 100%. is limited. And this is right in John Bolton's wheelhouse to military, diplomatic and sensitive national security matters. That's what John Bolton did. The president may waive executive privilege. No one will testify without a deposition first and then either trans- either transcripts of the deposition, which will be taken in secret, but with Republican uh, lawyers for the president and Democratic House managers there. They will either read the transcripts of the deposition to the Senate or if they really want to make a show of this, they'll actually have live testimony in the well of the Senate. That hasn't happened in 100 years right. because in the Clinton case, they used the deposition transcript reading model. You can be assured the president's going to use the executive privilege. You just know he it. Said it, yesterday. He, he said said it yesterday. yesterday. he said it yesterday. He said it yesterday in uh, Switzerland. He did. All right. Uh, hey, uh, Judge, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, the- so there you have it. You know, more more to come on all of that. Let's watch that kind of close. It's going to be interesting. It's definitely not the Clinton impeachment, you know. And let's remember, you know, didn't Clinton lie before Congress? And that's actually what he did wrong. It wasn't the Monica Lewinsky thing. That's his personal private life. It's he should have just said, hey, look, this is a private matter, and he could have handled that in a different manner. It's just, I think he got caught with his uh, hand in the cookie jar, let's put it that way. And yes, he did do something wrong. He lied to Congress. And that, in that situation, would presumably be impeachable let's not forget he's not an innocent man all right so let's climb on to this next thing the un accuses saudi arabia of amazon ceo's phone hack 
I find this kind of interesting. You know, Bezos, 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 he is kind of a bigwig, you know, and remember they run the AWS, which is the Amazon Web Service, and I believe they actually provide service for the United States government in a contract deal. So that that would be very, very uh, disturbing to me if Jeff Bezos was to have certain passwords or different information regarding whatever on his phone. Because I don't know about you, but my phone is a catalog. It has so much that I save. It's interesting. This phone hack. Let's listen into this. That startling report from the UN accusing Saudi Arabia of hacking Amazon founder Jeff Bezos's phone with the help of the Crown Prince. Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas is in Washington with the very latest on all that. Good morning, Pierre. Robin, good morning. The allegations are like something out of a movie thriller. A Saudi prince accused of spying on a powerful billionaire. The United Nations stunning allegation, accusing the Saudi kingdom of hacking one of the richest men in the world, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. The suspicion that Bezos was targeted because he's the owner of the Washington Post. The U.N. report, which included analysis of data collected by a firm hired by Bezos, as well as other evidence, concluded the hack happened back in May of 2018. In an effort to influence and possibly silence the Washington Post's critical coverage of Saudi Arabia. Much of that tough coverage coming from Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who was later brutally assassinated by a Saudi hit squad. Wednesday, Bezos tweeting this picture of a memorial service for Khashoggi. The UN report claims Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman allegedly sent Bezos a video file on WhatsApp, seen here in this image obtained by Vice News. When opened, the file allegedly allowed hackers to break into Bezos' phone and download massive amounts of data. Immediately upon receiving this video file, the phone uh, started behaving in a different, completely different way. Just five months after the hack in October, Khashoggi was murdered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. According to the report, the crown prince also allegedly sending Bezos another WhatsApp message with a picture of a woman closely resembling his then-mistress, Lauren Sanchez, months before his salacious affair was revealed to the world. The Saudi foreign minister is dismissing the allegations. The idea that uh, the crown prince would hack Jeff Bezos' phone is absolutely silly. The U.N. investigators are calling for the U.S. to look into their explosive claims. Justice Department officials are declining to comment on the specific allegations, but say when there are accusations of hacking, even involving nations, they will investigate. Guys? All right, Peter. So I don't know about you, but that makes me a little, I don't know, curious, more curious about that. I want to know more about that. Because Saudi Arabia, they don't play by the rules a lot of the time. You know what I mean? That man walked into an embassy and was hacked apart. 
don't know. That disturbs me. (laughs) So these people don't play by the same rules. And we have to realize that. What are they doing? Why do they want information off of Bezos' phone? Interesting. If that's uh, true and not just a simple allegation, we had better watch that a little more closely. Find out more about that. Next thing that I find kind of disturbing is this coronavirus. You know, now it's here in the U.S., right here in the good old Pacific Northwest where I reside. That doesn't make me feel too good. Now, they say they've isolated, but yet they've got people flying and they don't know where everybody is. This is going to be very interesting to watch because when we talk pandemics, they can happen so fast. With our modern transportation, these viruses and plagues can be spread so rapidly around the world. This is something to be concerned about. Let's listen into this. Beijing's authorities have cancelled New Year celebrations this weekend as a precaution as fears about the spread of a deadly new virus grow. Singapore has just confirmed its first case of the virus. Two more Chinese cities, meanwhile, have joined Wuhan, where it was first identified in being put into lockdown. Huanggang and Erzhou, with a combined population of eight and a half million, are 70 kilometers away from Wuhan, where 11 million residents have been told to stay put. Well, the World Health Organization has said such a massive operation to restrict people moving and spreading the disease is unprecedented. They say it's not something they have advised. Official figures now say 25 people have died, 600 more have been infected, most of them in Wuhan. Stephen McDonnell reports. Wuhan is in virtual lockdown. In this city of 11 million people, you're not allowed to enter any public space without a mask. All public transport has been closed. The last flights in were already half empty. The final train services were also eerily quiet. Normally, the Lunar New Year rush would mean you can't get a ticket. Here, we're at the very epicentre of the virus. Maybe it's best not to travel. I'm confident that our government has the situation well in hand and that the situation will be quickly brought under control. Now, wherever you look, people are wearing masks. They're lining up to buy more masks. Some people are cancelling their trips. And there is a lot of concern. And what's really made people pay attention to this health problem has been the shutdown of Wuhan. The Wuhan shutdown has made this emergency suddenly very real for people right across China, triggering memories of the 2002 SARS outbreak, which led to more than 600 deaths. Neighbouring cities are also stopping train services as well as closing bars and restaurants. These drastic measures have been welcomed by the World Health Organization. The sequencing was done quickly, but more importantly, it was shared immediately. And that's why Korea, Japan, Thailand were able to diagnose the new coronavirus quickly. 
In all Chinese cities, medical teams are preparing for an influx of patients with the coronavirus, which causes pneumonia. Staff at this Wuhan hospital isolation ward are worried. We are worried about our work here and get even more worried when we see the news every day. I always say to others it's okay as we are well protected. Actually, I was just saying that to keep them calm. We are actually afraid and worried. But as long as we are here, our own sense of duty will help us to do the job. We are still. Now, did you catch that? I was just telling them that to keep them calm. I want you to remember this is what government does. I'm going to just tell you this to keep you calm because they don't want to deal with a panic situation on top of a pandemic situation. Remember that. You should be responsible for yourself and make sure you know how to take care of yourself in critical situations. When situations like this comes up, you'd better understand what it is, how it spreads, and how you can avoid it. This is not up to somebody else. This is up to you. If you're waiting for somebody to tell you what to do, how to do it, you may have already lost. You should stay on top of this. The coronavirus. This uh, virus, it received its name because it has... Its shape is like a crown. It's interesting. This thing you want to watch. You want to listen closely when they talk about this. Let's carry on with this. All young ourselves, so honestly we feel lost and afraid. Our family members are worried too. But as long as we wear the protective clothing, we'll be okay. Travelers had already left Wuhan before the transport shutdown was in place. With a five-day incubation period, many may have carried the virus to other cities and countries, not knowing they'd already been infected. And inside a metropolis quarantined from the outside world, medical teams are bracing for this emergency to get much worse before it gets any better. A short time ago, Stephen Mc- So we want to definitely watch because you don't know what this thing's going to do, how it's going to act. And here, let's listen into this other part about the first case of the coronavirus confirmed in the U.S. And as you heard in that previous clip, You know, the incubation time, people just went on their merry way before they even knew they had it. We don't know the extent of this yet. It's something to watch. Let's listen in. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. 
A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. Officials now say more than 400 people have been sickened and nine people have died. The World Health Organization is holding an emergency meeting right now. Kena Whitworth is in Seattle, has the latest for us. Good morning, Kena. Hey, Robin, good morning. So that patient is a man in his 30s. He is in the hospital here behind me. Now, officials are describing his condition as satisfactory, but he will remain in isolation for at least the next couple of days. They will continue to monitor him as well as the healthcare providers and patients he came into contact with after testing positive for the coronavirus. The first case of the deadly Chinese coronavirus making its way to the U.S., a Washington state man testing positive for the deadly virus. According to the CDC, the man in his 30s flew home to Seattle last Wednesday, infected but not yet symptomatic. According to officials, shortly after arriving in Seattle, he began feeling ill and reached out to his health care provider on Sunday. 24 hours later, his diagnosis was confirmed by the CDC. The man entering the country before federal health officials began screening travelers from the city of Wuhan, one of the busiest transportation hubs in central China and where the outbreak began. This is certainly not a moment for panic or high anxiety. It is a moment for vigilance. This, as some three billion trips are expected to be made by Chinese citizens heading home to celebrate the Lunar New Year Spring Festival a reported 7 million Chinese tourists expected to travel abroad. Chinese officials taking every precaution to contain the virus. Workers outside of the local hospital in biosuits. Officials screening travelers as they enter and leave the airport. Our Bob Woodruff is here, walking through Wuhan Airport, wearing a three-ply surgical mask to limit his exposure to the virus. The city is now controlling people going in and out of the city. Then also local tourist groups are being banned from leaving. The government does not want this infection to leave. Screenings now expanding to five U.S. airports, including Chicago and Atlanta. And anyone hoping to enter the U.S. from Wuhan must do so through one of those locations. So right now, the CDC is retracing this Washington man's steps. They say he actually did not visit that fish and meat market in Wuhan where they believe this virus originated. And also, Michael, they're really crediting this man for quickly alerting doctors once he became symptomatic. All right. Thank you so much, Kana. And now we're going to bring in Dr. Jennifer Ashton to answer a few questions that we may have. And Doc, there are so many questions about transmission of, of the virus. Right. We did human to human um, yesterday we talked about that. What more do we know at this point? Well, again, what we know is that it's spreading. That's not really a surprise. What we don't know is a lot about this virus. We don't know its incubation period. We don't really know the route of transmission. It is a coronavirus, which normally spreads via respiratory droplets, but we don't know the specifics on this new one. We don't know how contagious it is, which means what percentage of people exposed will actually get sick. And we don't know the severity of the illness, how many will go on to develop mild symptoms, things like pneumonia requiring hospitalizations, and we certainly don't know the fatality rate yet. 
And at this time, what, what had been done to protect the public here in the U.S.? A lot being done. And we have to emphasize, Michael, a lot of this has been prepped and primed by the response of not only the CDC, but the World Health Organization in response to SARS. So we know how to act more quickly, more efficiently here in this country. As we heard, flights coming from Wuhan will only be allowed to land at certain airports where this screening can take place. Passengers will then be screened. And if sick, they will be isolated. If asymptomatic, they'll be given very important educational materials as Dana said, um, healthcare providers urged to screen and new ta- testing methods being get out, gotten out there by the CDC so we can identify these cases more quickly. All right, Doc. Thank you. You bet. So I don't know. That's something to watch. They don't know a lot about this virus. And yet there was a person flew into the airport in Seattle which SeaTac is a major, major hub. Now, they don't even know what the uh, incubation period is for this. And they allowed this person to go. One of the hubs that they are now flying people into is not Seattle. Interesting. We had better watch this. and. Prepare. You you never know what's going on. So that I found very interesting. The last thing I have is the Holocaust. And I want to just listen in to Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, about the Holocaust. President Rivlin, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Your Majesties, Presidents, Excellencies, honored survivors, and distinguished guests, it is deeply humbling for me to stand before you today on behalf of the American people as we mark the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. On this occasion, here on Mount Herzl, we gather to fulfill a solemn obligation, an obligation of remembrance, to never allow the memory of those who died in the Holocaust to be forgotten by anyone anywhere in the world. The word remember appears no fewer than 169 times in the Hebrew Bible. For memory is the constant obligation of all generations. And today, we pause to remember what President Donald Trump rightly called the dark stain on human history. The greatest evil ever perpetuated by man against man in the long catalog of human crime. The faces of a million and a half children reduced to smoke under a silent sky for the crime of having a single Jewish grandparent. The night Eli Wiesel, called seven times sealed, consumed the faith of so many then and challenges the faith of so many still. Today we remember 
what happens when the powerless cry for help and the powerful refuse to answer. The town's name was Osvenshem. As part of their plan to destroy the very existence of Polish culture, the Nazis gave Polish towns German names. And this one they called Auschwitz. When soldiers opened the gates of Auschwitz on January 27, 1945, they found 7,000 half-starved, half-naked prisoners. Hundreds of boxes of camp records that documented the greatest mass murder in history. Before the war was over, in its five years of existence, more than 1.1 million men, women, and children would perish at Auschwitz. As my wife and I can attest firsthand from this past year, one cannot walk the grounds of Auschwitz without being overcome with emotion and grief. One cannot see the piles of shoes The gas chambers, the crematoriums, the lone boxcar facing the gate to the camp. And those grainy photographs of men, women, and children being sent to their deaths without asking, how could they? Today we mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. We remember the names and the faces and the promise of the six million Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust. Today we also pay tribute to those who survive, who all these years have borne witness to that evil and have served mankind by their example. And today we honor and remember the memory of all the Allied forces, including more than two million American soldiers who left hearth and home, suffered appalling casualties, and freed a continent from the grip of tyranny. And finally, we pay tribute to the memory of those non-Jewish heroes who saved countless lives. Those the people of Israel call the righteous among the nations. In an age of indifference, they acted. In an age of fear, they showed courage. And their memory and their example should kindle anew the flame of our hearts to do the same in our time. We must be prepared to stand as they did against the wave of their times. We must be prepared to confront and expose the vile, 
tide of anti-Semitism that is fueling hate and violence all across the world. And we must stand together. In that same spirit, we must also stand strong against the leading state purveyor of anti-Semitism, against the one government in the world that denies the Holocaust as a matter of state policy and threatens to wipe Israel off the map. The world must stand strong against the Islamic Republic of Iran. And finally, we must have the courage to recognize all the leaders and all the nations that are gathered here that today we have the responsibility and the power to ensure that what we remember here today can never happen again. Mr. Prime Minister, as we honor and remember the six million Jewish martyrs of the Holocaust, the world can only marvel at the faith and resilience of the Jewish people, who just three years after walking in the valley of the shadow of death, rose up from the ashes to reclaim a Jewish future and rebuild the Jewish state. And I'm proud to say, as Vice President of the United States, that the American people have been with you every step of the way since 1948. And so we will remain. As President Trump declared in his historic visit to Jerusalem, bond between our two peoples is woven together in the fabric of our hearts. And so it shall always be. Today we remember not simply the liberation of Auschwitz, but also the triumph of freedom. A promise fulfilled. A people restored to their rightful place among the nations of the earth. And we remember... We remember the long night of that past, the survivors and the faces of those we lost, the heroes who stood against those evil times. And today we gather, nearly 50 nations strong, here in Jerusalem to say with one voice, never again. through pogroms, persecutions, and expulsions in the ghettos, and finally even through the death camps. The Jewish people clung to an ancient promise that he would never leave you or forsake you, and that he would 
lead this people to inherit the land that he swore to your ancestors that he would give them. And so today, as we bear witness to the strength and the resilience and the faith of the Jewish people, so too we bear witness to God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. May the memory of the martyrs be enshrined in the hearts of all humanity for all time. May God bless the Jewish people, the state of Israel, the United States, and all the nations gathered here. And may he who creates peace in the heavens create peace for us and for all the world. O say, shalom, bimro mav, huye ase shalom. Alenu v'yakol yis Israel v'yim ru. Amen. Awesome. Never forget. And yes, never deny. There are so many men and women that sacrifice so much to liberate the people of Europe and to deny that from happening. Oh, wow. You don't want to repeat that. We don't want to see those atrocities come back. And those old visceral hatreds are back with us again. It's up to us to stand up to it, identify it, and never cower to it. Never, ever cower to it. America proud, America strong. We can, we will, and we will always answer that call, my friends. That's what we do. Thank God for the great people of the United States of America. We are the beacon and the light of hope in this world. Some deny it, some denounce it, foreign and internal. Never deny what happened in this world or we are doomed to repeat it again. These hatreds, they have to be addressed now. We have to talk about it, stand up to it. Our very freedoms, our very liberties depend on it. That's basically all I have for you today. At the end of my cast, each day, I open it up to you, the audience. If anybody wants to say anything, step up now or forever hold your peace. And with that, I want to say thank you and join us right back here to, yeah, tomorrow, 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time.
Ed out.